Welcome to Journal Spotting. Trying to keep up with climate change facts, but really, you want to know what you can do as a healthcare professional more than suggesting your patients should watch Cowspiracy on Netflix? Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. This is The Climate Zone. Welcome back to Climate Zone listeners. Here we inform you, the healthcare professional, about what you need to know regarding climate change and how this will affect your practice. I am Dr Barnaby Hirons, flying solo again tonight. I missed the last Climate Zone where our climate team discussed a difficult challenge we were set by LJ, to avoid plastic until our next meeting. For me, key hurdles with this were children, travelling and dairy. It was impossible to be 100% without plastic. But the whole thing opened up my eyes to the issue. If you haven't tried going plastic free, I'd recommend it. I mean, give it a go, even for a short time. It's the only way you can become truly aware of just how much single use plastic is out there. The next challenge was to take the next step to changing our diets to plant-based. Therefore, I am now trying my best to cut out all things dairy. This is tough. Recently, I tried two different Sainsbury's vegan cheeses, for which my three-year-old son gave a review worthy of a top fromage connoisseur. What do you think of vegan cheese? I think it's disgusting! (laughs) Why do you think it's disgusting? Because it sticks to my cup every time I eat it. It sticks to your cup? And it tastes like poo-poo. Poo-poo? But I did not give in. I have since tried some vegan cheese from online company Honestly Tasty. And they are, honestly, tasty. Well done then. Check them out on their website. However, tonight I have a totally different tasty treat for you all. I interviewed Dr. Robin Stott, who has had an amazing career, spanning numerous titles, achievements and wonderful stories. To relay just a few career highlights... He was a consultant at Lewisham University Hospital in South London for 27 years, where he was also the site dean and medical director. As a lifelong climate activist, he has been the chairman for the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, or IPPNW, chairman of UK MedAct, co-chair of the BMJ's Climate and Health Council, sustainability advisor to the mayor of Lewisham, chairman of the charity C3 Collaborating for Health, and more. Stories we will cover today include being present at the beginning of the end of the Cold War, video camera in hand, and, more recently, his run-in with the law with Extinction Rebellion. I mean, this guy has done it all and we had to get him on the show. You are about to hear his inspiring tales, his experiences and opinions on COP26, a description and solution of climate justice, and your role as a healthcare professional. But, before we carry on, As always, press pause, go to Apple Podcasts, hit five stars and type "Hmm, nice things in the review box. Then hit copy link and send to everyone you know. That's right, including Mark, SPR Knights. I mean, (laughs) you can't remember what he looks like or even his surname, but he'll definitely appreciate it. Hopefully. Robin. Thank you so much for joining us on Journal Spotting. R- Richard Smith brought up your name when we interviewed him back for uh, episode 39, I think. And since then, I have been reading over your fascinating career. Now, I suspect you have many, many amazing stories, which our listeners would love to hear about, such as, to sort of, just to give them an idea, um, how you photographed Matthias Rust when he landed an aeroplane in Moscow's Red Square in I think it was 1987, um, just before the turn of the Cold War, or perhaps even a story about your most more recent run-in with the law. Robin, very naughty. <laughs> when you were arrested with Extinction Rebellion. Um, so perhaps to start us off and to give the audience a bit of an idea about yourself, would you like to tell us that story about Extinction Rebellion? Yes, yes certainly. The, uh, I've been very concerned about the impacts of climate change on health, both individuals and planetary health, for the last 
30 plus years, as have many of my colleagues. And we've been writing about it most honorably, people like Richard Smith and Richard Horton and Fiona Godley, um, and trying to raise the alarm in, uh, in the most effective way we can by writing journals and speaking and talking and trying to speak to the politicians and generally using our medical clout such as it is to get the message across. Um, but as you will know from the trajectory of the problems, uh, we, we certainly haven't reversed them and arguably our efforts have not been sufficient. And it struck me therefore that we need to do something more as both individuals and health professionals. We have a Hippocratic Oath obligation to preserve the public health um, and in the course of fulfilling that obligation we may sometimes have to do more than just talk and speak. Um, and there's a long history of this of course because uh, John Snow removed the Broad Street pump in, in 1854, arguably uh, 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 an action of non-violent civil disobedience and so in the light of this um, very admirable uh, precedent, I felt strongly that we should, that I as an individual and we as a, a group of health professionals should begin uh, engaging in nonviolent direct action to put pressure on the political parties to do much more about resolving the issue of the ecological and climate emergency. And Extinction Rebellion was an obvious vehicle for so doing. And I joined uh, the doctors group in Extinction Rebellion and I went on many events with Extinction Rebellion and found them to be extremely uh, rewarding in the sense that they were uh, both joyful and committed. Um, and it's important to know that in Extinction Rebellion, our actions are intended to exemplify the, the life we wish and the, and the society we wish to live in. So non-physical and non crucially non-verbal violence, but both enjoyable persistence, commitment and, and disruption to get uh, attention. And on the particular day in question, um, I was going up to a, a rally in, in Whitehall, not with the extension, intention of being arrested, but then I heard fortuitously uh, our present Prime Minister talk in the most disparaging way about people involved in Extinction Rebellion, and it infuriated me. I became incensed. And so when asked to move from Whitehall, I said, um, I prefer not to. And this um, a very charming and delightful policeman said, well, in that case, I'm going to remove you. And I said, well, so be it. And so I was removed. I fortunately wound up, Johnson had said um, something about hippies and ring-nosed, whatever it was, is I'd forgotten that. And as it happened, I was arrested together with a delightful young lady from Nottingham University who had a ring in her nose, so, <laughs> which, was, which was extremely good news. So there was this geriatric whom Johnson hadn't explicitly um, criticised. Yeah. With a, with a young woman who was uh, putting herself at much greater risk, of course, than I in doing an admirable thing. So that was how I got arrested. And were you worried? Were you at any point scared or were you sort of fairly um, relaxed about what was going to happen? I wasn't really frightened, no. I was, obviously, I'm aware that the, that, they, that in the UK you can only be kept for 24 hours. So yeah. it, although it seemed a long time, I knew that I wasn't going to be interned forever. In fact, the, the most unpleasant thing for me, which is a trivial thing, is that they wouldn't turn the light off in my cell. Okay. And I can't sleep with that, <laughs> with the light on. Oh, gosh, it's, yeah. But, um, I couldn't, I, I tried to rest and was unable to do so. And that, in a way, I mean, it's silly, really, but that was what um, I found most, uh, an infringement of my rights, which I found particularly vexatious, was them taking my DNA. Um, okay. They said they were they could do but would not use if I wasn't charged. Now, you know, get real, Gov. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, somebody's got my DNA somewhere, and um, um, presumably, if and when they want to use it, they will. Yeah. I, well, what? I think the thing that really is important to realise is that the young working doctors and health professionals who do this are at much, much greater risk than I. And so yeah. I, I really think, in a way, it should be um, retired health professionals who do this um, because basically there's no I mean you know that you 24 hours of relative unpleasantness but little other risk whereas for young doctors I'm in full of admiration for their fortitude and their, and their courage I'm glad to say the GMC seem to be uh, not taking any major action against this I, not intentionally I think they just they, they sweep it under the carpet and just don't notice um, oh, that's interesting I'm yeah not like that I but but uh, 
we, we have approached them. Yeah. Not surprisingly, they can't condone arrest. Yeah. I suppose I should say thank you. One of the reasons is, as you say, I think there is this, still this idea that people who um, are passionate about climate change and go on these marches are hippies without a job who nose rings dreadlocks or something just the other day we were at the um, cop 20, 26 march in london and as well as walking home with with my wife and my mum who's a retired doctor my wife and i wearing scrubs and i had my three-year-old and a one-year-old there was a, a very posh couple who walked past and they said oh look it's those protesters i wish they'd go and get a effing job <laughs> i just here when you're just so astonished for so many reasons i couldn't really think of any good comeback apart from i'm sorry are you are you mad (laughs) i mean it was so crazy but this is obviously the mindset of some people and so um it's important to show support from doctors and medics um of all generations in these in these things to show that it's professionals who who want it we are going to cover this uh this hugely important meeting which had uh fairly lofty hopes of saving our world by the way listeners this is not the journal spotting agm as you might expect but cop 26 so robin i understand you you were at cop 26 were you you in glasgow i was um i um should have been riding all the way from from great ormond street like many of my colleagues um uh, but in fact although i'm a keen cyclist for a variety of reasons Actually, I think I can say I had an opportunity of spending half term with my grandchildren, which um, it, it prevented me from, well, prevented me, discouraged me from riding to Glasgow, except for the last day. So I went up by train and stayed with a friend of mine there and borrowed his wife's bike. And he and uh, oh, uh, he, uh, went to the, the place called Lesh Mahago and rode the last uh, spell into uh, Glasgow with a remarkable group of health professionals who've been doing this all the way from London and taking with them, not personally and physically, but being accompanied by these extraordinary pods, which I'm not sure you know about, but they're an, uh, an installation artist whose name, of course, I've forgotten, um, had, had created five large pods the size of yurts and, and generated inside of them air from Delhi, Beijing, Sao Paulo, Oslo and London. And so you walk through these things to sample the impact of air pollution, because mm. although the, the 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 overriding objective was we needed action on climate change, the kind of canary in the, the, the mine was was uh, air pollution, and um, uh, which is obviously a, a major issue right now. And with us, we took two, three actually, two um, civil society and one WHO message. The civil society messages were, uh, I'm not sure if you and your listeners are aware, but Richard Smith and others um, managed to put the same editorial on the impact of climate change into 233 medical journals in early September, which is, I think, un- an unprecedented event. Remarkable achievement. It's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, we took that with us um, to present to the past regions. And there was another letter signed by uh, what was said to be, I think, 40 million Represent the, the representative society, the organisations of 40 million health professionals, saying much the same kind of thing. And then the WHO had, made a, had done an excellent report, actually, which we also took. At the actual conference, how, how were you involved? Well, as you probably know, the, the conference was, was divided into, into thirds. There was the blue zone around which there was a ring of steel, and you had to have various passes and permits and just that and the next thing to get in. There was a green zone, which is where society was supposed to go and represent itself. And then there was the outside, which is where activists were um, doing their bit on the streets of Glasgow. And organisations could get passes for the Blue Zone. And the UK Health Alliance did have passes. And certainly I, I wasn't offered one and I wouldn't have taken it because, in my view, young people should go in there, not us oldies. Um, and indeed, it was the younger members of the Alliance and else who did go in there. And they tried very hard to link the, 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 the swell of attention outside in Glasgow and get some purchase on the decision makers in the blue zone. But in reality, I've been to five, this is the fifth or sixth COP I've been to. And the ability of the, the, the civil society outside to engage in the middle was lamentable and actually disgraceful in my view 
I think it, it illustrates a, a, an important issue, actually, in that the attempts of civil society to engage in this issue have been really very fractured and, and, and not very effective. And I'm including health professionals' embrace of civil society. Whereas, for instance, the oil companies and others get, as far as I can see, that major opportunities to influence the events. We're still in a world where money matters. Yeah. yeah. Let's have a little think about sort of what the situation is then, Robin. And you've alluded to this earlier on. And in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about um, how the perilous situation the world is in. Perhaps you could paint us like a brief picture on what the world would look like if temperatures rise more than 1.5 degrees, which obviously is the the key aim of COP26 is to keep it below 1.5 if possible. So what would the world look like? There There are a variety of kind of dystopian outcomes. And I suppose it would be nice to think there was a hierarchy. But of course, with tipping points, things flip very quickly from a relatively stable situation into an extremely unstable and very, very dangerous situation. So the first thing to say is that this is not a linear problem. You know, it's not that 1.5 means that 1 billion people will be affected and 3 means that 2 billion people will be affected. It's a, it, 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 the, the likelihood is that when you reach a certain point, um, the whole thing will come down like a pack of cards in a major way. And, you know, it's like water going into steam. I mean, one degree changes the thing completely. So I think it's really important to recognize that the, 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 the apparent gradual nature of this occurrence now may not be and almost certainly will not be the way things go in the future. So that the, the, the problems like um, crops, water, sea level rise, all of which are well understood and which are thought of as kind of gradually getting worse, probably will get precipitately worse. And so large numbers of people, particularly in vulnerable places, will be at great risk of their livelihood. And of course, the danger of that is that they will get extremely agitated for all sorts of reasons. And agitation can lead to unpleasant conflicts. And uh, so I suppose my my worst scenario is a sudden worsening of food and water supply coupled with sea level rise, causing massive migration, causing conflict, which could escalate into all manner of unpleasant conflicts and amplifying the problems which existed before. I'm actually rather surprised that there hasn't been more um, dissidence, violent dissidence uh, by young people. Because my perception is that they're getting really angry, very uh, discomforted and angry. And I'm delighted that so far the anger is being channeled into protests along the kind of Greta Thunberg mode um, and Extinction Rebellion. But I, I worry very much that there will be a, a more uh, unpleasant form of response if we don't get things under control. Absolutely, we can. You've painted a, 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 an honest and bleak picture, and we can all imagine how what the health implications of that would be. So, with that in mind, what were the for COP twenty six? What what did people want to get out of it? What were the the key aims? Well, I suppose that um, most of us were realistic, and I'm going to be rather elliptical here and say the main thing for me is that the impetus for civil society was not fractured by an inappropriate response at COP. At Copenhagen in 2009, I was there, and the aspirations of civil society um, seemed to be going to be fulfilled. And there was a real feeling of, of momentum. But the fact that it was a disaster, I think, put back the environmental movement by some years, because people just felt, you know, bug- I mean, okay, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point? What's the point? And I would hate that to happen here because clearly the aspirations of the young in civil society have not been met by this COP. That, that's a rather negative way of looking at COP, but I think that's an important perception is that it's only a small step and we have to keep up the pressure in a way which is now clearly gaining momentum. And so that the important thing for me is that both decision makers and civil society now really, under, even decision makers who make bad decisions or wrong decisions actually know what's going on and, and, and have absorbed what's going on. So I think there's a, 
a very positive thing there, and I hope that the that the COP won't in any way diminish the endeavours of civil society and and the wider organisational groups to say it's not enough. We have to keep going. Having said that, I think I, I don't like the way that China and India get dissed all the time. It it, it irritates me uh, because I think it's playing kind of geopolitics. Um, Certainly, mm. and it's all very well, but India is really at the moment entirely dependent on coal. It doesn't have any other resources, and it's moving towards uh, renewables and. Although there's obviously a very rich middle class in India who behave perhaps in not the most admirable way, the vast majority of the Indian subcontinent is extremely poor and just completely dependent on coal and and, and uh, that. So whilst I would very much like there to have been a, a, a fixed limit on the uh, removal of coal from the sea, without it being coupled with massive investment, to the countries which are using coal. I mean, India's got money to a certain extent, but nonetheless, its emissions per capita are small and and the vast majority of people there are impoverished. And, and so I think there's a there's got to be some kind of humility on the part of the West and understanding. I know we'll be talking about equity and uh, and there are, in my view, good mechanisms for doing this. Fair enough. What about the other key outcomes from COP26 then? What did what, what did it achieve? I think uh, Alok Sharma did a good job in trying to orchestrate more nations to um, be committed to upping their so-called NDCs, national determined commitments. And coming back in a year's time is, I think, helpful. So clearly the cold thing was an advance, a step in the right direction. But I think it was handled badly in terms of the vilification of China and India, in my view. What else happens? I'm not sure, really. You know, just disinvestment in coal and, and uh, OK, uh, Britain disinvests. We're just about to go and dig a, a coal mine in the, uh, sorry, an oil field in the yeah. north. I mean, what can one say, uh, Barnaby? I mean, it's really difficult. The words, we're going to, we're going to stop subsidising fossil fuels. It, I mean, it's great. And, I, and if, it, if it works, it's something like a trillion dollars a year across the board. Um, uh, maybe a bit more, but unless I've forgotten, but uh, which would be great. Uh, a commitment to do that is important and helpful. But one keeps worrying that there is a dissonance between um, the articulated uh, positions of even people in relatively good faith and their actions. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, well, lots of chat, a lot of discussion about sort of the rules about the coal, and instead of saying phased out, they changed it to phased down, and it got watered down. And yeah, which is why the but they was China and India, and they okay. were vilified for so doing. I think China is going to lead the field. Um, I think China, um, whatever you feel about their particular forms of social organisation, uh, will probably undercommit and overdeliver. Let's hope so. Okay, that's good. That's optimistic, at least. That's good. I noticed in from what I was reading about COP26, there was very little mentioned about healthcare systems, which yeah. uh, you know, our audiences know, you know that they they produce, they have a huge carbon footprint, yeah. and they are a huge problem, and they're a huge industry, especially in you know something like the NHS. What, what, what was your view on this? Why why do you well, think it wasn't brought up? Really, because um, I am full of admiration for the English Health Service, which, as you know, has a net zero plan which has been implemented uh, one of the um, i'm not sure i'm allowed to say this really because it's one of the um things which really upsets those involved is their inability to broadcast what they've done because of the extraordinary attitudes of nhs england communications people who seem to be in a, 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 really? a friendly of fear about i think it's probably because they feel that the great british public would not want money to be spent on health to be used in this way. I, I don't know, but, but they've done a remarkable job. Nick Watts, who indeed leads up the team, um, has laid out year on year targets and extraordinarily for the health service and everyone else, he's met his first year target and more. So there's a really interesting example of a public sector making a commitment and delivering on a commitment to go net zero. Um, and I can't understand why Johnson and others at the COP didn't actually say, actually, this is a really interesting example of a very forward-looking thing. Again, I'm not sure how public the knowledge is, but I'm going to say anyway that the 
that the um, the net zero thing in the UK in England has managed to negotiate with many of the major suppliers that they won't that they'll be diffident about taking supplies from them if they don't commit to going to net zero. Yeah, and, and diffident is not is too weak a word. Um, I'm being fascinated. I words rather carefully. I think, as you say, it's a great achievement, isn't it? And it's a shame that you're right, that it wasn't used as an example at COP26 because it is a very good example of how things can work and um, yeah. even in massive organisations. Yeah. COP26 as a whole, it sounds like you had quite uh, tempered expectations. Do you yeah. think it met your expectations or do you think it should have gone further? I guess it met them, really. I mean, I really wasn't expecting anything more. If 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 the... Malawi, no, not Malawi, it's a bad example. If, if Brazil says its NDC is going to be X, and in fact it turns out to be Z the next year, so what? I mean, yeah, what? No, no repercussions. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, apart from moral authority and, and, and possibly things behind the scene with the UN saying we're not going to give you whatever, or whatever, I mean, I, you know, who knows, there may be some kind of, it's, it's a really difficult to understand how, the COP organization can get the appropriate leverage. I mean, I think that I certainly invested much more in COPs than was warranted or reasonable, and certainly is what's been realized. Fair enough. 1992 is a long time ago, um, and the, there's been an inexorable decline in all measures since then, apart from the ozone layer. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that's the one, one, one win. Everything else is sort of gradually getting worse, despite yeah. really quite clear knowledge about what's going on yeah. and regular international meetings. I have a, I have a, a solution, of course. Um, of to course, COP, go ahead. Which is simple: that nobody over the age of forty should be allowed to make a decision. That at least half should be women, and at least half should come from the underprivileged countries, um, and that if you put them in, you'd get an answer. Yeah. We, are we going to put you in charge, Robin? Is that what's going to happen? 40, if you have you noticed? Oh. You know, so, <laughs> I'm not saying that us Odies shouldn't have a, a say. Uh, yeah. um, we should not be in the, we should not be the, the, the decision makers. I like it. Let's get Greta Thunberg up there in yeah. charge. She'll yeah. sort it out. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be any obvious change for healthcare professionals um, off the back of COP26? in England or other places in the world? Interesting question. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, my hope is that um, the increasing awareness of the intimate relationship between the ecological emergency and, and good health becomes ever more ingrained and deeply settled in the hearts and minds of health professionals who, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether we do have the clout we pretend we do have, but... Um, I think it probably is a reasonable clout. And if there was a, uh, a genuinely 80% of healthcare professionals said enough's enough, I think that would be important. And so I think probably the increasing realization of the implications for health, uh, more health than healthcare actually, will seep through and hopefully galvanize more people as we go along. Absolutely right. That's why the podcast is for as well. <laughs> I think that the interesting thing to me is what what is the most effective action a health professional can take? Yeah. And uh, to me, it's never vote for anyone who doesn't put climate change as a key priority, whether it's in the college, in your hospital, in the local in your school, in, 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 in general election, anywhere. Every single election, when you have an opportunity for... The, making the president's Royal College of Physicians, for instance, um, you should say, what is your view on the ecological emergency? And if he or she doesn't say or mutters or, or prevaricates or something, they don't get your vote. Full stop. That's solid advice. I like that, Roman. Yeah, let's keep it simple and use you know, the power of words and use our voting to count. Lovely. Generally speaking, um, I think you, you're both a bit of an optimist and a bit of a pessimist. Um, how optimistic are you about the future from the from climate change? It's a really difficult question to answer. Mm. So I'll be elliptical again. If I had wished there to be a result from my actions, I would now no longer be active because we haven't had a result. So the reason I act is because actually I feel I have to. 
and I love the way the world is, and I love the way that I relate to nature. So I do it because it seems for me the best thing to do now, regardless of what happens. And so to the extent that I'm an optimist, this isn't really optimistic, but the extent that I, I keep action a- active is related to the fact that this is what I need to do for myself. Yeah, and also, I guess, for my children. But, but I, mean, I think we usually say for our children, but actually often it's for ourselves. Um, we, we just need to do this. This is what we feel we need to do regardless. Um, yeah. And that sustains action. I mean, that doesn't really answer your question. I, I, uh, but, but I, you don't I, have to. You don't, it's okay. I'm worried, I am worried for the. I'm worried for my descendants. Yeah. I've got to say, I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a request for a one of your stories about about Matthias Rust. This was Moscow in 1987. I have been a member of the International Physicians Prevention of Nuclear War for many, many years. We used to have. I probably still do, although I'm not so closely involved now. Not because I'm not committed, I still am, but for a variety of other reasons. Uh, this year, our annual conference is going to be in Moscow, which is extremely good news because those of you who know about this organization will know that Bernie Lyon in 1979 was at a conference in, I think, Geneva, where he came across a man uh, called Chasov, Eugene Chasov who was a Russian physician and Bernie Lyon was an American physician and they both had strong views about the stupidity of nuclear war. Now, the good news was that it turned out that Chasov was Gorbachev's private physician. Of course, nobody knew this at the time, um, but when Gorbachev came into Prague, Chasov was his private physician. And so Bernie Lyon and the IPPNW had quite good access to sit very senior elements of the Russian, of the Soviet society. And oh, how interesting. So okay. It was a very good time to go to a meeting in Moscow. Uh, you, I don't know if you've ever been to peace mo- mo- meetings, but they're usually pretty vigorous things, and sometimes they get a bit tetchy. And I've forgotten quite what the tetchy issue was, but I, I was uh, fed up, basically. I wanted a bit of fresh air, and so I went out into Red Square from a meeting um, and with my video camera, and I was just videoing away, and suddenly I, I heard... Uh, a Cessna or an airplane flying low over Red Square. And I thought, a little bit odd. I'm not used to this kind of thing in London or whatever. And so I turned my video onto this thing and made a few pretty inane remarks, I guess. And then a few minutes later, it came again, Um, circled around and and flew over Red Square again. And, And this time I did focus my video on it. And then to my astonishment, it landed but just by the Moscow River, just in a, a place just a little bit distant behind St. Basil's Cathedral. Um, and so um, I hurried over there. Um, and again, to my astonishment, out of this thing emerged a young uh, pilot. Around him gathered lots of very intrigued Russians. Um, and he, he spoke German to them. And one of the ladies there was translating to her Russian colleagues. Um, saying, you know, what on earth is he doing? And he said he'd flown in from Helsinki. And actually, he said he was flying for peace. And uh, so, so they said, what's he going to do? And he said he was going to take off again and go away again. And so they were a bit um, surprised by this. And, and you know, brave boy, brave boy, all the rest of it. And, um, and it must have been about 10 minutes of interchange between the Soviet, the Russian population and this guy before anyone of authority turned up and then some heavy came along and began dispersing the crowd and um and and they didn't take my video away from me they just told yeah. me stop doing this and so i went off with the, with quite a, a long bit of video of this guy getting out of his plane and talking to the population um and then i was staying in a thing called the Russia hotel which is a dreadful okay stalinist uh, excrescence on the edge of Red Square, um, and at four in the morning, I had a knock on the door, and so I thought, well, you know, this is likely to be unpleasant. But actually, it was CNN who had heard that some aging and bald physician had taken <laughs> thing, and they said they wanted to have it and they'd pay me for it and all that. And I said, well, um, I can't do that because 
we're actually in conversation with Gorbachev at the moment. And and I really don't want to be party to, you know, causing problems. Uh, but then two days later, Gorbachev used this event to sack the chief of the Air Force, whom he'd been trying to get rid of for ages. And so he used it as a device. And, having, and after that, I then told CNN they could have the footage, not have the footage. And they, I was robbed anyway, but that's another story. And I mean, because I, I was completely, I mean, I'm an innocent in these areas. And so um, I've sold it for, for nothing, basically. <laughs> uh, but um, and so that's how they got it. Fascinating. And Matthias, um, he he was locked up for a while, wasn't he? I think he was. And I then tried to, I communicated with him and said, because yeah. um, I, I did get a bit more money for this, and I gave it all to the peace movement in rather a kind of honourable way, maybe not honourable. I said I'd like to meet him, and we arranged to meet uh, at a, an event which I'd organised in the East End of London, and I'd asked friends and colleagues and people to come and had all the kind of stuff there and and uh, had got there at four o'clock in the afternoon and got a phone call from him saying that his plane had been delayed, which was <laughs> not true. Oh. He just hadn't come. And so um, I never did meet him. Oh, it's a shame. But what a wonderful, what a wonderful tale. I mean, uh, such a crucial time in history, just as, you know, a couple of years before the, the ball came down and uh, um, really fascinating and uh, to yeah, be I'm, there in the midst of it. Yeah, just an extraordinary bit of luck, really. <laughs> I think we should probably press on with the with a huge topic at hand, which we're going to try and cover today. And this is climate justice. Right. Um, so if it's OK, I think we'll start fairly big. So start global and then we can deep dive and go look a little bit about you know, the UK and our local communities. The first question for you, Robin, actually, for our listeners and maybe for myself is, what actually is climate justice? Well, in simple terms, it's a moral issue of um, whether resources should be equitably distributed amongst those who are living now and who are likely to come in the future. And I suppose as a health professional, um, uh, I recognise that the equitable distribution of resources is key to good health. So uh, forgetting about climate for a moment, the inequality in the UK is clearly extremely damaging to the health of people in the UK. And likewise, the inequality in the, in the, in the use of or the availability of resource to um, people in the world is a major, major damaging issue. Um, and of course, it's even more important in terms of the climate because in a way we could fix inequality in the UK financially tomorrow if we had the will and the um, and the good sense, and there wouldn't wouldn't be that much lost. Whereas we've, in terms of climate, uh, we have uh, we the the, the West and, and people like me and, and you, I guess Barnaby and all of us have have overconsumed and overused resources, um, which are irreversibly removed. So um, the injustice inherent in the use of of ecological resource to sustain human life and and the life of other non-humans, other than humans as well, is 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 irretrievable. Whereas many other forms of inequity are in essence reversible, if you see what I mean. Yeah. So even if we began now to try and ensure, as I believe we should, that there's an equitable use of climate resource, uh, whether it's water, air, or whatever, we have a legacy of inequality, which we can never, ever um, sort out, in my view. It's, and it's done irreversible. Very difficult to reverse damage. Okay. Uh, but, but, but trying to be optimistic about it now and trying to say, well, uh, let's do the kind of Mandela-type forgiveness. Let's start from where we're at. Let's try and say a lot of what's happened before has happened. It was awful. Um, it may be difficult to resolve. To start off with, let's start where we're at now and see if there's a way um, of trying to ensure that the residual uh, goods in the in the climate, which are necessary for our health, are used in an equitable way. And an easy, easy, a, 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 a one way of looking at this 
is to use carbon dioxide emissions as a proxy of all the other kind of resources. How much okay. can humanity emit over the next X years to ensure that we keep below 1.5 degrees? Okay. Now, in 1990, that was a lot. Now, of course, it's much less. And I always forget the figures because I'm not good on figures, but it's something like a, a, a billion, a hundred billion tons of carbon. So it's two and a half billion tons of carbon dioxide would be the allowable amount that humanity can put into the air if we wish to keep below 1.5 degrees. The question is, how should this be allocated? And is, is there a way of allocating it which helps resolve some of the injustice? It doesn't compensate for the whole injustice. It doesn't help many other areas like the loss of species and everything else, although it's the use of money gendered, if used properly, would do so. So um, there's an, uh, uh, a framework called contraction and convergence, which has been around since the early 90s, and which I've been an advocate for of for nearly 30 years. And what it says is this. It prefaces it saying that the um, basis of, of any just resolution of climate has to be equity um, and transparency and an efficient mechanism for doing it. It doesn't say it in that words, but that's what it actually implies. Um, and so you and I saying, well, we've got to give 100 billion quid to the, uh, to the developing world is, is useless because we know that the West does not deliver and do it, which we've talked about before. Um, it just hasn't happened. And it's, anyway, it's woefully inadequate. So is there a mechanism for using um, the uh, CO2 allowance, if you like, um, in a way which would lead to uh, a more equitable allocation of resource and a transfer of money to those who are least responsible? And the answer is yes. So you just tot up the amount that you can put into the atmosphere. Uh, you look at the average emission per person now, which actually is 4.1 tons of carbon dioxide per person. And that is your that's your entitlement. You, Barnaby, get 4.1 tons of carbon dioxide. I, Robin, get 4.1 tons of carbon dioxide. Thank you very much. Um, there's a, there's a, a, a limit, which is a 200 billion tons. Um, and every year you get less because we have to reduce it to the, the sustainable amount, the annual sustainable amount, which is 1.5 tonnes of carbon dioxide per person per year, uh, which, which would put the, the atmosphere in equilibrium and keep the CO2 level at least constant, if not reducing it a bit. So you, Barnaby and me, Robin, if I use eight tonnes, have to buy or transfer, get the resource that's not used by a Tanzanian who's using 0.5 tonnes per person. So that Tanzanian has 3.5 tonnes of entitlement, which they could use to, in whatever they, they wanted, but probably to uh, enable you and I to buy our entitlement from them. And in this way, you get a transfer of resource with a capped amount of carbon and a reduction over the years. And the incentive for you then is, of course, not to use carbon dioxide. And yeah. the incentive for them is not to use carbon dioxide because it wouldn't get so much money the next year. So there's a big incentive to go to decarbonize society um, in, in, a, in an imaginative way. Now, that's been modified, that proposal, because it, that's an in, that means money going to individuals, um, which I yeah. actually like um, and probably would be viable now. It wasn't in 1990 because we didn't have iPhones and the rest of it. It probably would be possible now because of the way that banking and money works. But it means that you bypass governments, and governments don't like being bypassed in general. So uh, the, the, another nuance of this is it was what's called a professor, the Prof Rajan proposal, which says that it is countries which pay the excess CO2 into a fund, a global common incentive fund. So the UK would pay for each of us the sum of, over which we are producing at, at a read amount, $50, $100 a tonne, into a global carbon incentive fund. And the Tanzanians would, would get three and a half tonnes per person from it because, do you know what I mean? Because they're... Yeah, they're, they're yeah. And so th that's a way of trying to frame 
um, a forward-looking, equitable distribution of resource, which has got a, a an effective mechanism of transferring money from the rich to the poorer. I, I think that's fascinating, Robin. I haven't heard of that uh, that idea before, or said in that way at least. Um... Of course, it doesn't recognise traditional um, emissions, which uh, is a problem. But it's a downside better than anything we've got now. And the money going, of course, would be far, far, far in excess of 100 billion a year. And it would be a great incentive, therefore, to actually get our act together and reduce the amount of carbon we're using. In my view, it would drive the necessary virtuous cycles in both the person who gives the money and the, the, the donor and the recipient. If that's the right word. It's not quite the right word, but see what I mean. Uh, yeah. I should say that the idea was promoted by a remarkable man called Aubrey uh, Mayer, who has been who's devoted his, he was he's given up his work as a concert violinist to and devoted his life to this um and lived in not, not i wouldn't say penury but certainly in a much more penurious situation he would otherwise have been um trying to to in, persuade people that this kind of idea is the right way forward thinking about sort of the world as it is at the moment which can you tell us about a bit about which countries are causing you know, the biggest problem with the largest emissions and which countries are the worst affected and why? Well, uh, the first is, there's a temporal issue in the first, of course. The present big emitters, of course, are China and, and the USA. Uh, but if you look at per capita emissions, which is probably a better way of looking at this, China is actually quite a long way down the league. Um, the last time I saw the per capita emissions of China was, was something like six tons of carbon dioxide per person, whereas the per capita emissions of America was something like 20 tons. Again, I've slightly wrong, maybe. And, and yeah, I think it, they're about 15 or so currently, I think I looked at them today. But, 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 and the per capita emissions, places like UAA, the UAR, Saudi Arabia, Australia, are even higher. And so, in a way, the bad boys, um, if you like. And it's interesting because, of course, in terms of who suffers, if you look at California at the moment, you know the, the water situation there is precarious. The fire situation is awful. So, although I'm not suggesting they're the major sufferers, even the, the the big polluters are suffering. But of course, the main sufferers are the are the, are the low polluters because of the uh, the low island states for obvious reasons for the sea level rise and many parts of Africa and India because of the I think now unequivocally weather-related events, um, whether it's drought, excess rain, et cetera, et cetera, which I think now are, I don't, I, which, which I think we can now say are unequivocally related to um, the increase in temperature. What do you do if you're a, a Bangladeshi peasant and the water is rising as well as the temperature affecting your crops or whatever or whatever? Um, it's not easy to know, is it? Look at what's happening in, in, on, in Belarus now. I don't know how many immigrants that is, but I've forgotten the number, but it's a few thousand. I mean, we're talking about millions, maybe billions of people on the move. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a terrifying concept. Yeah. Terrifying concept. Currently, we're not doing enough from the rich nations. And um, even after COP26, I think you sounded like you're not too hopeful that the money, well, the enough money is going to be spent. It, realistically, when has the West ever delivered on promises, sorry, when has the rich world ever delivered on promises of redistributing wealth to the poorer world? Never. Unless there is an absolutely rigorous framework, it seems to me, unless there is an obligatory framework. And you, I think you earlier on mentioned charity. Um, I don't give money to Oxfam anymore. Uh, the reason I don't is because the presumption is this is charitable money going from us to them. It's not. It's reparation. Um, yeah, and, that's and, interesting. And yeah. Until people actually say this is not charity, this is reparation. You pinched God alone knows what from these people over the years. And so to to, to actually categorise this as charity, I, I'm not knocking Oxfam, they do a good job, but to categorise the kind of transfer as charity is, in my view, a kind of serious error and so um and, and and until we get the kind of reparations notion into our mind which is what in a way the contraction and convergence does it doesn't quite do it but because it doesn't repair the damage over the years but at least it's a 
it's a it's a an explicit mechanism recognizing the justice of getting money from a to b fascinating I, but you stopped paying money to oxfam because of the the, the term charity or because you're against the idea of it sounds like you're not against the idea of reparations but it was it no it's i i if it, if it, it, it well i mean you know look at it at a personal level yeah if, if some if i'm if, if a person comes to me and says Robin, you're rather rich and I'm a bit poor. Can you give me the money? I probably won't. But if somebody comes to me and says, you owe me 50 quid because you pinched it last year, I'd be much more inclined to give it. Very good example. And the psychological relationship between us would be completely different. That is a very good way of thinking about it. And I must say, I hadn't really thought about it from that side of it before. What I was saying previously was this idea of charity being a, a bit of a double-edged sword. And... Um, there's always pros and cons, and there's always. Yeah, and, I, and I mean, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm. I, I'm not against people giving out of their money, and, and but I, I do. I, I do think we have to rethink the nature of the transfer, um, what it means psychologically and actually in historic terms. Let's now go away from slightly away from the the global perspective and have a look at our own societies. I think this is often more difficult for people to think about. It's quite easy to think about, yeah, you say, people, yeah. poor people in Bangladesh in a very low country with water levels rising. It's a little bit harder to, for people to get the concept around in our own country. So could you explain that to us a little bit about what climate justice is in the UK and what you know about? Well, um, clearly, the, in every society, there's a hierarchy of people who suffer from the impacts of what is happening to the climate. And the people who suffer least are you and I. The upper middle class, rich whites, um, and then it goes down the level of women, and then people of colour, and then women of colour. Um, you know, so there's a kind of that's almost I think it's universal through the through every country that the rich male dominant male suffers least, and the uh, the poorer female suffers most. And the the reasons for that are. Um, that, that often in, in places like the UK, the simple reason is the air pollution in the, in the places where you live and the, the fact that you have to pay large sums of money for heating because you're living in crappy housing, which somebody has not done anything about for years, etc., etc., and you can't afford decent food. And there are all sorts of interrelated reasons which make it very difficult for poorer people to survive the, um, the, the, the inequalities which are foisted on them, which are exacerbated by things happening from the climate. And so my response to this is, is twofold, really. One is, I think there should be a wealth tax tomorrow. I think that, um, that the, the, the kind of pickety wealth tax is a, a reasonable way of trying to reverse the accumulation of wealth in the hands of fewer and fewer people. And that wealth tax should be used for a new Green Deal, which would be looking at finding useful jobs, useful work for people, um, which had three objectives. It would be to uh, be environmentally restorative in some way. It would be economically advantageous because they'd get a decent living wage for it. And it would be socially helpful because, I mean, I'm too old to really know how young people are feeling. But my impression is that the eco-anxiety is a real problem amongst young people and that work which shows that you are healing the environment uh, may also heal yourself. Um, and so uh, a, a New Green Deal can have a, an enormous range of activity. It can be technological, it can be um, spiritual, it can be manual, it can be I mean, there are all, all manner of things that you can do in a new Green Deal. Um, but the overarching uh, frame should be that it is both environmentally, socially and economically restorative. And I mean, obviously, the Labour Party and others have got a good new Green Deal plan, too. So that would be my response to how you deal with it here. Do you think the Green New Deal is, is going to happen? I don't know. It's got a reasonable chance, I think reasonable chance. I think the wealth tax would be a, a, an important way of generating the billions you need to make sure that the new Green Deal would, would 
properly compensate those who are involved. Fingers crossed, though. Yes. There is yeah. again when there's ideas and there's something concrete to focus and try and push through, then that helps people because they've got something which they know could work and they and they'd want to try and get it to work. Yeah. So, what are the the richer people, the, the more wealthy? What are we doing, which is um, creating so much more carbon? It's a really interesting issue, isn't it? Because we haven't mentioned population yet, um, uh, and we ought to. And um, my simplistic view is that we know how to control population. It's easy. We educate women. If you educate women, the transformation is immediate and sudden. Look at Iran, look anywhere. Uh, we have absolutely no idea how to control consumption. There's never been voluntary control of consumption uh, ever that I know of at a societal level. I mean, maybe the Trappists and, you know, you know but, but at a societal level, I, as far as I'm aware, there's never been uh, a voluntary, I mean, in war and everything else, yes, but, but a voluntary uh, cap on consumption. Because he, let us say we got renewable energy coming out of our ears, so we had enough energy for everything. If we still used resource to build the things we needed to build in an unsustainable way, which we would do if we consumed as we're consuming now, we'd still be in terrible trouble. Peril, the difficulties of Overconsumption, and I'm an overconsumer. I mean, you know, it's 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 almost built into our our Western lifestyle. Absolutely, it's something so ingrained, and it's paradigm shift to try and um, get away from that attitude, which we've been brought up with. Yeah. You know, Christmas is coming, and um, it's extremely difficult to get away from that um, that mindset. Yeah. I tried. I wanted to bring it a little bit back to say the healthcare professional. Yeah. Um, the doctor on the ground, anything they can be doing to help or bring up awareness about climate justice? Um, the, the UK Health Alliance, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the organisation which Ned Up Richard Smith mentioned in his talk. He um, did, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, has, and no doubt he, I hope he did, he said that we have on our website a hierarchy of action from the very simple to the complicated for individuals to take both in the context of their own lives and the context of their professional lives. And, you know, the simple things like walking rather than driving your car and, and, and being exemplary in this, you know, eating non-processed food and, and being exemplary in that, talking about the issue and being exemplary in that, trying to find ways of, of using resource-like interventions. Um, psychiatry is a really good example, isn't it? I mean, we know that walking in the forest is as effective for mild depression as and moderate depression as, psycho, as psychotropics. You know, using uh, if you're an anaesthetist, not using the, uh, the, the, the 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 anaesthetics which really screw the environment, which are for which they're equally good. If you're a, a respiratory physician, using dry inhalers, not you know. So there are things in your medical life you can do. Then uh, you know, escalating it up a bit you as a physician might have influence in your own hospital getting ground source heating or, or renewable heating or even putting in LED lights. There's a big gap there. And and, and recognising that's part of healthcare, of health, and recognising this is not just for so-called environmental reasons, but this is actually for linking it always back to the environment being a necessary basis upon which human health flourishes. So there are a number of things that you can do on an individual and collective basis. And these are itemized in a more coherent way than I've done it on the UK Health Alliance site. Great. And I will um, I will certainly put that in the show notes. And lovely. Robin, thank you so much. I think you've got some fantastic ideas and plenty of food for thought for, uh, for the doctors and healthcare professionals who are listening and ideas of how what they can do, where they can look. And ideas about how we can start to try and shift our thought process which i think is is brilliant as much as, much as we can ask do you have anything else anything else you want to sort of talk about before we before we sign off uh, no only to uh, ask all my health professional colleagues just to get active in any way they possibly can and to and to enjoy it because they probably will I think that's key, isn't it? I think so much of it is possibly enjoyable. Better food, better diet, better health, going on fun marches with lots of people. I don't know. There's plenty to be to get enjoyment out of. And if you enjoy something, you're going to continue doing it. Yeah. Thanks again. You take care. Cheers, then. Bye. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your host, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, and special guest, Dr. Robin Stott. Information and links from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook, or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grants, our logo lady, Natalia, and promotion stars, Isabel and Abby. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com, or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.